Second Kings 15, we left off with verse 37 last week. And these were the days of King Jotham, who was over Judah. And verse 37 said, In those days the Lord began to send Judah against Judah, Reason the king of Syria, and Pekah the son of Remaliah. One of the results of apostasy, that is the falling away from the truth, whether it was then or now, is the attack from enemies within and without. And we looked at that quite a bit last week. Under Jotham's rule, Judah was being attacked by her sister nation Israel, but also by a Gentile nation, Syria. And this wasn't some cruel trick that God played on them, but the result of Judah's gradual and then sustained departure from the covenant that was between them and God. And as is always the case, at no time did God forsake his part of the covenant. He didn't break the covenant. In fact, one of the names for God is translated from the Hebrew is the God who keepeth covenants. So that's, that's one of his attributes is that he keeps covenants. But when this happens, when the covenant's broken by the people, then there are unpleasant consequences that have to take place. You, you can't undo it. You have to suffer those consequences. When someone catches a, a disease, and whether they are treated for it or not, let's say it's a disease that doesn't have a treatment, then they have to suffer through that, even though we don't want them to. And when our children disobey us, then they have to know that the consequences they're going to face are sure. They're, we're not going to dispense with them or set them aside for today. We have to follow through. So that's what God does. Listen to what God told the children of Israel when he spoke through his servant Moses. Now, this would be a long time before First and Second Kings. It's found in Exodus 23, verses 31 through 33. Exodus 23, verses 31 through 33. And you see this, what I'm about to read, this is knowledge that the children of Israel had, the children of Judah, who are children of Israel, that they had before they made the decisions they made. It says, God says through Moses, And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea, even unto the Sea of the Philistines, and from the desert unto the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out before thee. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. Had Israel kept God's covenant as he made it, everything from the Red Sea where they crossed in that wonderful story about God parting those waters as they escaped out of Egypt or were delivered out of Egypt. 
everything from the Red Sea all the way to the Sea of the Philistines, which some translations have as the Mediterranean Sea. That's a lot of land. All of that would still be theirs if they had kept their covenant. In that great land, from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, in that great land, had they kept the covenant, then none of their enemies would be living there. Not one. They would have all been driven away. And because those former inhabitants of that land would have been driven away, then Israel would not have had the opportunity or the temptation to make a covenant with the false gods of those former inhabitants. See how God knew what he was doing every step of the way, everything he did. Some may say, well, it's nice that he gave them such a large plot of land, but why couldn't they have diversity, equity, and inclusion and just let everybody live and do as they please, kind of like the United States is trying to do right now? Because it doesn't work. It doesn't tend toward righteousness, holiness. It takes people away from God. And in this description of the promised land that God gave Israel in Moses' day, what God is showing them is not only what their geographical land should be like, what their society should look like, what their religion should look like, but he's also showing them what their in eternal inheritance would look like. You see, there's a geographical inheritance that is a picture of an eternal inheritance. In Revelation chapter 21, we see a description of the new Jerusalem. That's what the Bible calls it. That city that will have no need of the sun or moon to shine in it, because the glory of God is its light. And the Lamb of God is the light thereof, it says. Now listen to who is in that city. Keep in mind what I just read you from Exodus about who is supposed to be in that land. And listen to who is in that city, that new Jerusalem. It's in Revelation 21. I'll read verse 24. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, that is, of that city. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. Now listen to who will not be in that city. Further down in verse 27, same chapter, Revelation 21, verse 27. And there shall in no wise, that means no way, no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So not one evil thing, not one unsaved person, not one lie, not one enemy of God or God's people will enter into that city. There won't be any false gods because their author, Satan, and their worshipers, the unbelievers, will have already been cast into the lake of fire. They will not be in that city. They've been excluded from that city. 
Now you think back on Judah during Jotham's time and during the time of all the kings before him. Israel and Judah had yielded their land to enemies. We've read about it over and over. This enemy came in and took this part of the land and then the next king or king after that would fight and get it back. And then it'd be taken from them again. They'd fight and get it back. And the reason that happened, the reason they had to yield their land to the enemies was that they were in disobedience. Israel was in disobedience. Judah is in disobedience. They had entered into covenants with the inhabitants of the land and worshiped their false gods. They had allowed everything and everyone into their land that God told them not to allow. What did he say back in Exodus? He said, I'm going to deliver them into your hand, these inhabitants, and you're going to drive them out, every one of them. You're not going to make covenants with them. You're not going to serve their gods. They're not going to dwell in their, your land because they'll make you sin against me. And if you serve their gods, it will be a snare. It won't be a blessing. It'll be a snare. And yet everything God told them not to allow in their land, they not only allowed it, but they made covenants with it. He gave them strict orders about thrusting out their enemies. He did this to protect them from harm because he knew, in his foreknowledge, he knew exactly what would happen if his, the enemies remained there. He did this to keep them from engaging in behavior that would break their part of the covenant with him. He did this to show them what their, their eternal inheritance would look like one day. Sinless perfection. Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. Sinless perfection, just like it had been when God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden. But they would not have it. They knew about it. They knew what it used to look like. And they knew what caused the problem. The children of Israel knew by the writings of the prophets, by the writings of Moses, that God took Adam and Eve and put them in a garden. And there was unbroken fellowship between God and them. There was no sin. They knew that happened. And they knew that when fellowship was broken with God, it was the result of sin. So they had a pattern already. They saw the awful consequences of it. God gave them the opportunity to go into a land that he gave them, to drive out all of the inhabitants, to have him as their God and them as his people. No false idols, no covenants with the Gentiles, any unbeliever, but they would not. Now we're in verse 38. 2 Kings 15, if you're just joining us, verse 38. And Jotham slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father. And Ahaz, his son, reigned in his stead. In the midst of this attack from without and within, Jotham died. And this king, although he was a good man, the Bible said he did that which was right, 
in the sight of the Lord, and he was even called a mighty man when it came to the military, he still failed to do what he could to keep Judah from sinning. He didn't remove the high places, if you remember. He didn't go into them, but he didn't remove them, and the people continued to worship the idols and burn incense there. And because he didn't do what he could to keep them from sinning, they fell into the hands of their enemies that we read about in verse 37. Now, verse 38 says he was buried in the city of David, his father. And just in case you haven't been with us before when we've studied that, uh, you may be a little confused and say, well, I thought David lived a long time ago and that Jotham had a father named Azariah or Uzziah, and that is true. What that means is that David was his forefather or his ancestor. He was from the line of David in that way. But his biological father was Uzziah, also Azariah. The names are used interchangeably in this text and in Second Chronicles. All right, now go to chapter 16 and verse 1. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. So as we saw in the last verse of the last chapter, Ahaz was Jotham's son, and he was next on the throne of Judah. Verse 2, 20 years old was Ahaz when he began to reign, and reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God, like David his father. Now remembering that Israel had come against Judah in Jotham's day, this 20-year-old new king Ahaz has to face a king, Pekah, who had been on the throne for 17 years. In other words, the king of Israel was a veteran king, and he had already been giving Judah trouble along with the Syrians. And Ahaz is a newcomer. And it says that Ahaz did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God. So in that regard, he was a step below his father, wasn't he? His father did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, although he didn't remove the high places. But Ahaz didn't do what was right. His father did. His father let the people burn incense and worship in the high places. And at the end of verse 2, it says, like David, his father. Now, what this does not mean, the way it's written here can be a little confusing. What it does not mean is that David, his father, did evil in the sight of the Lord. We know that's not the case because we read about David and that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And he tore down high places. He, David didn't let that stuff stand. He held people to God's standard. Another translation of this verse might help you down here. It says, unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. Now that makes sense. That helps us to understand it a little better, perhaps. Ahaz was the opposite of David. David was righteous. Ahaz was unrighteous. And his behavior bore that out. Ahaz could have chosen to continue at the very least as his father did, but even more so, he could have said, you know what, 
My father did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. I'm going to do that, and I'm also going to tear the high places down. I want to be like David, my forefather. He was righteous. He's the one to whom all the good kings are compared. But he went the other way. Verse 3 says about Ahaz, But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, yea, and made his son to pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. Look at that phrase. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Now, if most of the kings of Israel and Judah had been righteous in God's sight, then this would be a great compliment, wouldn't it? Why, you're just like all the other kings. The truth is that most kings in that day and today, most leaders in the world's history, in fact, most people who have lived on this earth, have been and remained unrighteous in God's sight. What did Jesus say about that way that leads to life? He said, straight is the way and narrow is the gate that leadeth to life, and few there be that find it. What did he say about the way that leads to death? Broad is the way and wide is the gate that leadeth unto death, and many there be which go in thereat. So you have many and you have few. Jesus himself told us most people will not find the gate of life. They will try some other way. They will, in, as we've said before, they'll take the religion of Cain any day over the religion of Abel. And so they'll go into that wide gate. So it's that way with kings as well. Those kings who were unrighteous would not, would not turn from their sin. They would not repent and accept God's free gift of salvation. The gift of salvation for the Old Testament saints or for Old Testament sinners was the same as it is for New Testament sinners. Looking to what Jesus, in their case, what Jesus would do at the cross, that promised Savior who would come, and ours is looking back at what Jesus did at the cross, that promised Savior who came. But to be saved, you have to look at the same sacrifice. And that's where a lot of religions that use the Bible are confused. They say, well, that, that's for Old Testament. They have to keep the law and all that. Well, if that's the case, then all the Old Testament people went to hell. Because none of them could keep the law perfectly. Not one. And not one person who lived in the New Testament age could keep the law. Not one. So that's not what got anybody to heaven ever, and it's not what will get you to heaven. Now it says, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And you know that reminds me of another description the Apostle Paul gave. It's really no different. We see it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 2, where Paul wrote, he's talking to Christians now, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So what was the description in that verse 
of those who walked according to the course of this world. They were dead in trespasses and sins. They're lost. They were living in obedience to Satan. They were led by the same spirit that was operational in the children of disobedience, the unbelievers, the rebels. And what was the way of the kings of Israel? The way in which Ahaz walked. It was the same thing. It's just described for us in more detail. As it said in that verse, he made his son to pass through the fire. Some translations have it this way. He sacrificed his son in the fire. That's what he did. Now just pause right there. That's cruel enough, isn't it? That's enough of a description about him to convince me he was no good to put his own son through the fire. I know how much I love my children. You love your children, grandchildren, other people's children. That's hard to say. Sometimes they are brats. But I love other people's children too. I don't want anything bad to happen to them. Why I, my, my daughter went to school with a, my middle daughter, Lauren, went to school with a, a girl named Carly, and, and she was, they were friends, played sports together, and went to class and all of that, and still friends to this day. And that Carly lost her little newborn to uh, bacterial meningitis. She was alive for, I think, 12 days, and, and she died. And, and we hurt for her. Lauren hurt for her, and that's not even her child. So you imagine... How much a person loves their child, how does a man sacrifice his son in a fire? Yeah, the spirit of disobedience is working in that person to be able to do something like that. Listen to what the psalmist wrote about the disobedience of the children of Israel and what came to pass as a result. And, and you're going to see this happened exactly like God told them it would. This is found in Psalm 106, verses 34 through 38. Psalm 106, verses 34 through 38. And here's what it says about Israel. They did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Lord commanded them, but were mingled among the heathen and learned their works. And they served their idols, which were a snare unto them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Now, the psalmist is writing about things that happened before what we're reading here. If you don't drive out the enemy, you will mingle with the enemy. If you don't drive out the enemy, you will mingle with the enemy. And if you mingle with the enemy, then you will learn his ways. If you learn his ways, you will serve his idols. And when you serve his idols, they will be a snare unto you. Because you'll sacrifice your children to devils and the land will be polluted with their blood. Now, a person who hears this may say, well, I would never actually put my child in the fire. Maybe not. Probably not. But you know, the fire in the Bible speaks of several different things, and one of them is an offering. 
what you put on the altar is what you offer. In the Old Testament law, the children of Israel brought various types of offerings, and one of them was a sin offering. And that sin offering, the priest did certain things with it and poured the blood out, and then they burned it. There were other offerings called burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings. And we studied those at length in Leviticus, Exodus, those Old Testament books. It's been a while. But we refer to them often. Because if you don't understand them, you'll have a hard time understanding the rest of the Bible. And if a person says, well, I'd never actually put my child into a fire. Well, if you teach your children that it's okay to mingle with the enemy, then you're paving the way for them to be offered as though they were offered in a fire. Maybe not physically burnt, but their land will be polluted. The land will be polluted with their blood. And if you believe it's okay for you to mingle with the enemy, then their idols will become snares to you as well, and the land will be polluted with your blood. Jesus knew Simon Peter would have his faith tested. Jesus knew the devil would tempt Simon Peter. And in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 32, Luke 22, Luke 22, verses 31 through 32, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, now that's Simon Peter, Behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee. Now Jesus told Peter, I prayed for you, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. To sift flour, which is made from wheat. He said he would sift him as wheat. But wheat flour is made from wheat, corn flour is made from corn. I know there are different types of flour. Rice flour, egg flour, whatever. But wheat is what we see here. But to sift wheat flour, you've got to shake the sieve. Now, if you've ever poured a bunch of flour into a sieve at home and just stood there, you might have a couple of grains fall out. But most of it's going to stay in the sieve until you do what? You start agitating it, shaking it. So that's, that's the image here. That's what to sift means is to take the sieve from which the word sift comes. Sieve is the verb. Sift is the noun. You sift with a sieve to agitate it, and then the flower begins falling through. And when Satan tempts us to do wrong, Jesus said he's going to sift you. When Satan tempts us to do wrong, he agitates us. He shakes us, trying to get us to renounce our faith. And nowhere was that more evident in the Bible than when he did that to Job. He told God, he said, you let me touch him, he'll curse you. God said, go ahead, don't, don't touch him, but anything that he has is in the power of your hand. So Satan caused all these things to happen where Job's family, all of his children were killed. All but four of his servants were killed. His wife told him, why dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Satan sifted him. The Bible said that Job, in all this, he sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. You know why? Because his faith 
failed him not. Same thing Jesus prayed for Simon Peter was operating in Job's life. When Satan tells us, not audibly of course, but when he tries to get us to believe God doesn't care about us anymore. Perhaps in your life something has happened and then another thing on top of it and another thing and you think, Lord, when's it going to stop? During that time, Satan would love for you to say, that's it, I'm done with God. But Jesus prayed, and I'm going to show you something he prayed, and this is so good, not just for Peter, he prayed for us too. Do you know Simon Peter would have his faith tried many times, and eventually he would die for it rather than renouncing the Lord. Jesus didn't pray that Simon wouldn't be sifted. Did you hear that? He did not pray that Simon wouldn't be sifted, just like he didn't pray that you wouldn't be sifted. In fact, he said to his disciples, you shall have tribulation. You walk the Christian life, you will suffer. You will have tribulation, but he'll never forsake you. Satan's arrows come at us often enough when we walk as Christians. The last thing we need to do is mingle with the enemy. And boy, the enemy will come to you when you're suffering. Say, hey, you know it'll take that pain away, don't you? Some of that, some of that, some of that. Or maybe you ought to give up this religion. What good has that done you? As those Gentile kings would tempt Israel and taunt them and say, ha, let's see your God deliver you now. As those Jews said about Jesus when he hung on the cross, others he saved, he can't save himself. Why don't you call angels to come get you down? We don't need to mingle with the enemy during that time. We need for our faith to be strengthened. So when Satan sifts you, don't give up, look up. You hear that? When Satan sifts you, don't give up, look up. Now, I said a minute ago that Jesus also prayed for you and me. It wasn't just Simon Peter who was on the uh, benefit, benefiting end of that prayer. It was us also because he knew we were going to be tempted by the devil as well. In John chapter 17, if you ever need to be encouraged, if you ever wonder, does Jesus care? You go read that chapter and you come away from there and tell me if you think Jesus cares for you. John 17, verses 14 through 19. Jesus is praying to God the Father, and he says, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Again, Jesus didn't say, don't let them be sifted. He said, when they're sifted, keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. We can't drive the enemy out of this world. But we also don't have to camp out with them. And when we find ourselves surrounded by the enemy, 
we can choose not to learn their ways, which will keep us from serving their idols and sacrificing our children to them. Jesus said the world hates us, so get used to that. If, if you spend your life trying to make other people like you, now you don't have to be cantankerous, but if you spend your life trying to make other people like you, you are going to sacrifice your godly principles. You're going to put truth aside because your goal is to try to get others to like you. If you're going to do that, then you've got a hard road ahead of you because as much as you try to get people to like you, they're still not going to like you. Jesus said he sent us into the world. So he wasn't asking God to take us right back out of it. His prayer to the Father was that we who are in this world should be kept from evil, sanctified through God's truth. If you're going to mingle with anyone, mingle with those who love God's word. I love all of my friends, family, co-workers, but I am particularly drawn to people who are Christians and who love God's word. And in those people's presence, I'm not afraid to learn of their ways because their ways are God's ways. I'm not afraid of serving their idols because they don't have idols. They worship the one true God who I worship through his son Jesus. And because of this truth, I will not find myself in a snare. As we learned in our study of Proverbs, mingling with a physically adulterous woman ends in a snare. It is a snare. Mingling with a spiritually adulterous person, one who has gone a-whoring after other gods, doesn't worship the one true God, that is also a snare. They have a common ending, don't they? Looking back in your text, in verse 3, where it says, And he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the heathen. Now, the abominations of the heathen mean those disgusting things that the Gentile nations practiced. And it's important to know that nowhere in the Bible did God ever command such a thing. There was no commandment of God to ever sacrifice your children through the fire, to put them through the fire. So this practice wasn't according to the abominations of God's people because God's people don't do that, not supposed to. But it was according to the abominations of the heathen. Concerning their own children, God commanded his people to abstain from uncleanness, to teach their children his statutes and commandments, and none of his statutes and commandments say you need to set your children on fire. Now, you may say, well, what about Abraham and Isaac? He was about to bring the knife down on him. He certainly was. You think that took God by surprise? You think God said, oh, no, he's about to stab him. God knew exactly what was fixing to happen. And he spared Isaac, 
taught us about a substitutionary atonement right there. As that lamb, there's that ram was caught in the horn by his thickets, or in the, in the thicket by the horns, didn't damage the ram, didn't put a spot or a blemish on him. And that was a substitute. So at no time did God say in his word that we're to sacrifice our children, we're to teach them, we're to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But most of the children of Israel did not, just like most church-going people today do not. Most people don't. It's no surprise to God that most people are unbelievers, rejecting His truth. And the worst kind are the ones who have infiltrated the congregations of churches all over the world. They are unbelievers who claim to know God. Paul warned us about these people. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, what you're going to find is Ahaz is a very religious person. But he's lost. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, where Paul wrote to the young pastor Timothy, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous boasters proud, blasphemers disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And here it is, having a form of godliness, just like Ahaz, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. Not mingle, turn away. What Ahaz did with his son, passing him through the fire, was according to the abominations of the heathen, which represent the unbelievers. This passing through the fire was a religious act. Don't get me wrong, it certainly was. But it was without natural affection. How is it that he could do this and say, I love my son? It was blasphemous. It was fierce. It had a form of godliness because it involved the sacrifice. But it denied the power thereof, the power of godliness. It was not gospel-centered. God didn't require that someone else send their only begotten son or all of their children to the cross or to the fire so that they might be accepted by him. He commanded us to believe on his only begotten son whom he sent to die for our sins. And many congregations today are full of religious people like Ahaz, who, though they may not have physically burned their children in the fire, they love the pleasure of their own religion more than they do God. They hold their traditions of men above the Scriptures. And yet, they'll turn around and pray to the one true God, supposing He's going to answer them in their time of desperation when their child has cancer or when their best friend has been in a terrible accident, when they've lost their job. And listen to what God says to these religious unbelievers in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Ezekiel 20, verses 30 through 31. This is God's answer to those religious unbelievers who 
suddenly come to him and inquire of him. For when ye offer your gifts, when ye make your sons pass through the fire, ye pollute yourselves with all your idols even unto this day. And shall I be inquired by you? That means, shall I be sought by you? Or are you going to seek me? O house of Israel, as I live, saith the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. And that which cometh into your mind shall not be at all, that ye say, we will be as the heathen, as the families of the countries to serve wood and stone. God said, I will not be inquired of you. I will not be sought by you. Don't come looking for me. By serving wood and stone, you serve the creation, not the creator. As Ahaz, you have done according to the abominations of the heathen. And then it says, back in our text in 2 Kings 16 at the end of verse 3, According to the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. God had on many occasions cast out the heathen from Israel. He drove them out through military might or sometimes by other means that did not involve the military. But he did it to keep his children from learning the ways of the heathen. However, the children of Israel mingled with the heathen and learned their ways anyway. When our children ask, you may remember these days if your children have grown, but when our children ask if they can hang out with someone, a friend or a group of friends, now, we as parents want to know about those friends, or we ought to. Are they Christians? That ought to be the first question. Are they Christians? If they're not Christians, then why would I trust anything that you do with them or they do with you? Do they drink alcohol or use drugs? Do they get into mischief? And why do we do that? Why do we ask those questions? Because we don't want our children to learn their ways. And the best way to keep our children from learning the ways of those mischievous children is to not let them mingle with them, like the children of Israel mingled with the heathen. And if a child comes to your house to play with your child and begins cursing or begins to steal things from your house, you, tell, you cast that child out from before your children, just like God did the heathen from the land. You tell them, you need to go home. You, we don't talk that way, or you've stolen from us, and you can't come over here anymore. And you teach your child to stay away from that child, because nothing good, they're not going to lead them toward God, are they? They're not going to set a godly example for them. And next week, as we pick up with verse 4, we'll continue to learn about these horrible, abominable things that King Ahaz, the king of Judah, did. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are for your word. And Lord, your word is strong in instruction. And it steps on our toes, and it ought to. For Lord, without Jesus, we are an unrighteous people, our flesh wants to do wrong every day. So I pray we'd take from this truth and learn and be emboldened in our faith, be strengthened in our faith, and 
Lord, that you just help us to walk more closely with you. In Jesus' name, amen.